Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part three of Before and After. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, last week we were in that classic passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we started defining love last week, and we found out, as I said in my prayer, that love is not primarily a noun, it is primarily a verb. And so hopefully you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to go ahead and read one more time verses 1 through 8. And so it says, Paul writing to the church of Corinth, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So what is love? Verse 4, love suffers long. Love is patient and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, so it's humble. And that's what we covered last week. This week, verse 5, love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. If you have the NASB or the NIV or a lot of other translations, it keeps no record of wrongs. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the count of three, help me out with the next three words in verse eight. One, two, three, go. Love never fails. And so once again, we have a great promise from God's word that we can certainly apply to our marriages. And what is that promise? We'll put it up on the screen. Love in action never fails. Never fails. What does that mean? That means that if you, husband, will love your wife the way Paul describes in verses 4 through 8, you have a guarantee from God that your marriage will have a 100% success rate. It's pretty good odds, right? And wife, if you will love your husband the way the Apostle Paul describes in verses 4 through 8, you also can have a promise from God, 100% success rate when it comes to your marriage. If we will just do what the Bible says with the help of the Holy Spirit, then we can have that guarantee from God that we will grow old with the same person and have the privilege of sharing this, enduring this lifelong love together. So last week, we got about through half the list. Love is patient, right? Love is kind. Love is not envious. And love is humble. Last week, I also mentioned the Apostle James. And I talked about how James, in his letter to the Christian community, said that hearing the word of God, okay, so all of you guys right now, here in the worship center, watching online, listening on your mobile device, all of you are hearing the word of God. So James likens the idea of hearing the word of God as looking at your face in a mirror. I didn't give you the verse last week. I'm going to give it to you this week. 
James says, don't just listen to, to God's word. You must, what's the word? Do what it says. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a what? In a mirror, okay? You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. What he means by that is, in other words, nobody looks in the mirror, sees that adjustments need to be made, and then walk away and forget what they look like. No, just the opposite, but if you look carefully, check this out, into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you, what's the word? Do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And so the idea here is that in the morning when we look into the mirror, right, and we see that, like I did just this morning, it was a horrible sight at six o'clock in the morning. But when we look ourselves in the mirror and we see that some adjustments need to be made, what do we normally do? We make those adjustments. When we look into the mirror, as I've said before, and we see our hair sticking up, right, bedhead, we see sleep in our eyes, stubble on our face, we don't just say whatever and then go to work. Does anybody do that? Maybe a couple teenagers in the crowd, right? But most of the time, what do we do? No, we look, oh man, I need some adjustments. So we comb our hair, right? We wash our face, we shave. If we're of the female persuasion, maybe we put on some makeup, why? Because we want to look good. So we look into the mirror and then we do something about it. You say, well, what does that have to do with your sermon? Everything in the world. Because today we're gonna finish the love list from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And once again today, I'm gonna be holding up the mirror of God's word for all of you to look into. Now, here's a warning, okay? As you look into the mirror of God's word and as you compare how you're doing in your marriage with what God says in the Bible, it could be very painful. Very painful. In fact, you're gonna be tempted to say, ah, whatever. And that's the worst thing that you could do in the world. The worst thing you can do in the world is have this feeling of hopelessness and say, I'm too far gone, or my marriage is too far gone. And then walk away with your hair sticking up, sleep in your eyes, stubble all over your face in your married life. What, 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 what needs to happen? You need to keep, listen, keep looking into the mirror of God's word, no matter how painful it is. Because here's what I know, we have a loving, forgiving God, a God of second chances. And if you will continue to look as James says, into the perfect law that sets you free and you do what it says, you make those adjustments, then God says, I will bless you. Now I'm just wondering, um, answer amen if you agree, I'm just wondering how many of you guys wanna be blessed by God? Everybody, all y'all. Okay, so you need to not just listen to the word today, Got to go home Monday through Saturday and practice it. So let's pick it up again in verse four. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. 
It is not puffed up. That was last week. Okay, here we go. Love, verse five, does not behave rudely. Here's your next point. If you're taking notes, love is not rude. It is respectful. Love is not rude. It is respectful. And I'm just wondering, don't answer out loud. I'm just wondering, do you treat your spouse with, 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 with uh, can't even talk. Do you treat your spouse with respect or are you rude to your spouse? It's a simple question, right? It has a simple yes or no. Now, why is it that a person can treat their boss with respect and their friends with respect and even total strangers with respect but when it comes to the most important person in the world, for whatever reason, we don't treat that person with respect, i.e. our spouse. Why is it that we treat those who are closest to us in a rude way? Well, here's why, and it's so sad, isn't it? It's because, you've ever heard this? Familiarity breeds contempt. And so if we're not careful, those we're most familiar with are the people that we treat with, um, with no respect at all sometimes when they get on our nerves. Why is it that the husband, you know, can come home and um, get out of his car and f be finishing up a call with a complete stranger as he walks up to his front door and, you know, it's like, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am, that's correct. All right, you have a wonderful day, click. And then goes into his house, walks into the kitchen, looks around, doesn't smell anything, doesn't see anything on the stove, and then says to his wife, you haven't even started dinner yet? It's 7 p.m. What have you been doing all day? You know what? Just forget it. I'm going out. And slams the door. Okay, question. Who's more important? The complete stranger on the phone or your wife? And yet you'll, you'll, you'll treat that complete stranger on the phone. Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. But then you'll rip your wife up one side down the other. Why? Why? Because familiarity, if we're not careful, always breeds contempt. I remember one time my wife and I, we went over, it's a long time ago, nobody in this church, okay? <laughs> we went over to some friend's house for dinner. And so it was just the four of us at their house. We sat down at the dining room table, and this wife, man, she... She cooked for a long time. She, she bent over backwards to make a real special meal for this special occasion. And while we're eating, the husband decides that he doesn't like the biscuits. In fact, he decides that his wife's biscuits are too hard. And so he decides to criticize his wife's cooking in front of my wife and I. Okay, um, dumb or smart? And so he begins to compare the biscuits, and he starts calling them David biscuits. He says they're David biscuits because they're as hard as the stones that David used to kill Goliath. And he's laughing like crazy. And my wife and I are just kind of like this. And the wife, his wife is mortified. By the way, they're not together anymore not because of that alone, but because of a lot of the other, other issues in the marriage. And it's not just the husbands who are rude to the wives. I haven't seen it, but I've heard stories from other people on staff about how wives sometimes 
rip their husbands a new one right here at church in front of a crowd. And the wife says, well, he deserved it. No, you're rude. Right? Keep looking into the mirror. Don't look away. The worst, wives, the worst thing you can do for your husband is to criticize him publicly. That's the worst thing. The worst thing you can do to your husband, wives, is to demean him and criticize him publicly. And so I want you to imagine just for a moment that you are blessed enough somehow to win a prize and to have dinner with your favorite public personality. Okay, maybe that's a movie star, maybe that's a pro athlete, maybe that's a pop star, whoever it might be, okay? I was thinking about this. One of my favorite per, uh, uh, public personalities I would love to meet one day is Tony Dungy. That's mine. What is yours? I want you to think right now what, what would be like your, one of your top three public personalities and you get to have dinner with them. Okay, how would you act over dinner? Here's what I know. You'd arrive early. And not only that, you smile real big when you met that person. And not only that, you would compliment that person. And not only that, when, um, when they were talking, man, you'd be hanging on every word, right? You wouldn't do anything disrespectful. And when that person says something funny, you, ah, you'd be laughing so hard. Here's what I know you won't, won't do. You won't arrive late. Not only that, you won't be rude to that person. You won't be disengaged. You won't be looking at your watch. You certainly, during dinner, will not burp or fart. <laughs> right? You'll do whatever you can to hold that burp or that fart in. No matter what. Question... Do you treat your spouse the same way? Who's more important, your spouse or your favorite public personality? Here's, here, here's what I know. The most important person in the world outside of Jesus Christ is that person that you promised at an altar to love and cherish for the rest of your life. Treat that person with respect. Why? Because love is not rude. And so... If you're dating somebody, take some advice from Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Treat that person with R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what that means to him. Find out what that means to her. And then begin to act that way. And you might say, oh, Pastor Mike, here, you don't understand. Yes, he's rude sometimes, but it's going to get better after we get married. Okay, all of you married couples, let's just at once instruct the single people among us just by answering yes or no. Will it get better after you get married? No. No way. Well, I'll change him. No. You won't change him or her. And so if that person that you're dating is treating you rude right now, right now during the dating or engagement period, Man, when, when, when the, the love feelings are at an all-time high, if that person is treating you rude right now, I would suggest you look for someone else to date. Keep looking into the mirror. And now, let's go on. As we continue to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's look at verse 5 again. Love does not behave rudely. 
and it does not seek its own. Okay, I want everybody to say, does not seek its own. Go ahead. That leads you to your next point. Love is not self-centered. It seeks to bless others. Now truly, if you will love your spouse the way the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is laying out and defining love, your love will never fail. You'll get to the end of your lives. If your health holds out and Jesus doesn't come back, you'll have the privilege of growing old, sitting on the porch with the love of your life, holding hands, sipping sweet tea, more in love than ever, if you'll do what it says here. Stop being rude. And now, stop being self-centered. Don't be self-centered, seek to bless your spouse. Now, if you really want to bless your spouse, then what you have to do is learn her language or his language. Now, you might say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor Mike? We already speak the same language. I'm not talking about your native language. I'm talking about your love language. Now, one of the best books that I have ever read on marriage, well, it goes way back to, I think, 1991, is The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman. And so I highly, 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 if you've never read this book, I highly recommend that you read this book. Because after many years, decades of counseling married couples in crisis, Dr. Chapman has discovered that there's five primary ways that couples receive emotional love. There's, there's five primary love languages. And so what are those love languages? We'll go ahead and list them here even before you buy the book. They are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, physical touch, and I'm gonna read them one more time because I think some of you guys are writing these down. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Now, everybody in this room has a primary love language. A number one way that you enjoy receiving love. Husbands, you have a primary love language in that list. Wives, you have a primary love language in that list. The problem is that in most marriages, husbands, your love language is different than your wife's love language. And so if you really don't want to be self-centered, if you really don't want to seek your own, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, if you really want to be a blessing to your spouse, then you need to learn the love language of your spouse and speak that love language to them. Listen, otherwise you're just being self-centered. Imagine a, an American businessman, wealthy guy, who decides that he wants to retire in Madrid, Spain. And so he's in his retirement years, got a load of money, so he goes to Madrid, he looks around, he finds a house, and he buys the house, and that's where he's gonna live for the rest of his life. Okay, question. What happens if this guy, this American, refuses to learn Spanish? He's gonna have a hard time communicating no matter where he goes in Madrid, right? Whether he goes to the store, 
whether he goes to the bank, whether he goes to the restaurant. I mean, can you imagine him walking out on the street? I need something to eat around here and trying to stop one of the locals. Uh, can you help me out? Where, where's the closest nice restaurant? I'm really hungry right now. And the person's just like, right? And so he's like, you know, eat, eat, eat. And then what if he cops an attitude? You know, what, does anybody speak English around here? Okay, so the self-centered thing for this guy to do is to refuse to learn Spanish and demand that everybody learn English to communicate to him. That would be the arrogant thing, the, self, the selfish thing for him to say, I'm an American, so you cashier, you bank teller, you waitress, you should know English. No, actually, you moved to Spain, and so you really need to learn Spanish if you're gonna live there the rest of your life. That would be the unselfish thing to do, to learn the other person's language, yes or no? Okay, it's the same thing in marriage. You probably have a different love language than your spouse. And so you can go through your whole marriage and you can only speak your love language to your spouse and because their love language is different, then you're never gonna really connect. Listen, there's couples that have been married for 20 plus years and they've never really connected because they don't understand this. They're speaking a foreign language, a foreign love language to their spouse. So what's the remedy? Learn your spouse's love language. In order for you to learn that, they need to tell you what it is. Okay, so look at the list again. And I want you to answer not what is your spouse's love language, I want you to answer in your heart, what is your love language? Is it words of affirmation? Do you really love it when your spouse affirms and compliments you? Does that really make your day words of encouragement, you know, uh, um, um, encourage one another, build each other up. And so when your spouse compliments you and encourages you, does that do something in your heart that really makes your day? Or maybe your primary love language is quality time. Maybe what really gets you going and gets you excited is when you know that you have that, that, that special time with your spouse, going for a walk, going on a bike ride, going on a date, going out to a restaurant, just connecting you and her, right? Just, just um, eyeball to eyeball, talking things through. Maybe that's what you really enjoy. Or maybe it's receiving gifts. Maybe your love language is when your spouse goes out of his or her way to make you something, and they surprise you with that. Or go out and buy you something, and then they surprise you with that. By the way, I'm just wondering, did anybody forget Valentine's Day yesterday? You're saying, Pastor Mike, I would never raise my hand if I forgot Valentine's Day yesterday. But maybe that's your love language. You love receiving gifts. Maybe it's acts of service. Maybe what really turns you on is when your spouse goes out of their way to help you and serve you in practical ways. And so I'll talk about a number of different things um, that go under that one. Or maybe it's physical touch. Maybe what really... Um, makes your day is when your spouse initiates holding hands or hugging or kissing or lovemaking. Maybe that's your primary love language. And so which one is it? And you might say, well, I love all those things, right? But what's your primary one? Now, if you need help figuring out what your primary love language is, let me give you the website fivelovelanguages.com slash profile, you can actually, this afternoon or sometime this week, you can go on 
Dr. Chapman's website, and you can take the profile. Wives, you can take it. Husbands, you can take it. And then tell your spouse what your love language is. By the way, even on that website, they, they'll let you, um, your child take the profile so you can learn what your child's love language is, so you can communicate emotional love in a very real way even with your child. And so as you discover your love language, again, tell your spouse what it is. If your love language is acts of service, then your love language is just like my wife's love language. That means that, you know, she loves it, my wife loves it when, you know, um, she sees me doing things, practical things, serving her and helping her. Um, if your love language is physical touch, then you're like me. That's my number one love language. And so I love it when my wife initiates uh, hugs and holding hands and kisses and other things. That's what really makes my day. That's my primary love language. The question is, what is your love language? And you gotta learn what your spouse's is. Here's why. And because we didn't read this book, my, my wife and I, by God's grace, have always had a great marriage. Not a perfect marriage, but we've always had a great marriage for 25 years. But we didn't read this book until probably 15 years into our marriage. And so we weren't primarily speaking each other's primary love language. What does that mean? What that means is if I did not know that my wife's primary love language was physical touch, I'm going to see if you guys have been listening. If my wife's primary love language was acts of service, then what love language, if I didn't know that, what love language would I speak to her? Let me see if you've been listening. Physical touch. I'd always be initiating, holding hands and hugging and kissing, right? Now, would my wife enjoy that? Yes, she enjoys that. But not as much as when I throw a load of laundry in. <laughs> I'm just being real with you today, right? <laughs> Trying to help your marriage. Does she like it when I hold her hand, hug her, kiss her? Yes, but not as much as when I help do the dishes after dinner. Not as much when I do practical things, when I go out of my way, this is what really um, turns my wife on, okay? When I go out of, of my way to put gas in her car, it's like I gave her a million dollars, but that's her love language. It's acts of service. Now, what happens if my wife did not know that my love, primary love language is physical touch? What love language is she gonna speak to me? Acts of service. So she's gonna pay the bills, she's gonna clean the house, She's gonna go grocery shopping, she's gonna make my dinner, and she's gonna think, this is the number one way that I can be a blessing to Mike. Now, do I appreciate all those things that she does? Yes, I appreciate it, but not as much as when she initiates a hug, or kissing, or something else, <laughs> right? So here's, the, here's, here's what you gotta do. Learn your spouse's love language and then speak that love language to your spouse. Don't be like the self-centered American who goes to another country and refuses to learn the language. Seek to be a blessing to your spouse. If you're single, starting to get serious with that significant other, 
Learn that person's love language. Go to the website, do the profile together. Begin to speak that love language with the person that you're dating, with the person that you're engaged. I kind of envy those of you who are dating, those of you who are engaged, because you have an opportunity right now, early on, to be able to learn some awesome principles and put them into practice. Listen, principles that most married couples who've been married for decades have no clue about. And so, man, if you're dating, if you're engaged, please, please, please take these notes, read these books, listen over and over to these messages and learn how to have a healthy, strong marriage. Look at verse five again. Love does not behave rudely. Okay, so we're treating our spouse with the utmost respect. Love does not seek its own. And so we're not all caught up in how we want to be loved. We're figuring out how they want to be loved. And then love is not provoked. So if you're taking notes, that's your next point. Love is not provoked. It exhibits self-control. Love is not provoked. It exhibits self-control. Okay, here's another question. When are you most tempted to be provoked? Probably right in the middle of an argument, right? When are you most tempted to lose self-control? Probably right in the middle of a heated argument or a heated debate. And so when there's tension and when there's a disagreement, I didn't say if, when, okay? Happens to every marriage, even the best of them. So when there's disagreement and when there's tension in the marriage, I wanna give you a list of things you never do, all right? Now, I hope, if you're, even if you're not a note taker, I hope somehow you're writing this stuff down. I hope you're taking out your iPhone and maybe clicking a picture of this. I hope you'll watch it later on because we're gonna start putting our notes on our, our website um, uh, sermons. But gotta get this, things you never do when you feel the anger rising. I just wanna see how many honest people are here today. How many, how, many time, I mean, how many of you have felt anger rising because of a disagreement with your spouse? Please be honest and raise your hand. I see all those hands, praise the Lord. That's the first step, you gotta be honest. So when you feel that anger rising, you never, ever, ever deal with the issue immediately. Why is that? It's so simple, isn't it? Because you don't wanna do anything, you don't wanna say anything that you're later gonna regret. And so what do you do? Remember last week, you take a deep breath, you say, honey, I need a break. And then you go off to cool off. What do you do while you're cooling off? You spend some time with the Lord. Are you gonna feel like it? No, no. Especially when the anger's up to here, you're not gonna feel like having a talk with the Lord, but you gotta do it anyway. And so you get off alone with, uh, with the Lord and you begin to ask him, Lord, I want, I want to commit this situation. You know my wife's heart, you know my heart, you know the disagreement we're having right now, and so I really want to submit this to you, and I really want, and I'm gonna touch on this later, you to show me where I was wrong. That's a, that's a, that's a prayer that God will answer. That's a prayer that God will honor. Number two, never consider your response while they're talking. 
I have so been busted on this one. I remember having a conversation with someone. They're sharing their point of view. And you know what I'm doing the whole time they're sharing their point of view? I'm thinking about my response. You know why I was doing that? Because I was being arrogant. No other, no other uh, excuse. And you know what? The person was perceptive enough to call me out on it right in the middle of the conversation. And they said, you haven't heard a word I've been saying. All you're doing is thinking about how you're going to respond to me. And you know what? I couldn't lie. I had to be honest because the person was right. Now, why is it that you never consider your response while they're talking? Here's why. It's your spouse. It's the most important person in the world. And what they have to say really matters. It's really important. And so make sure you're listening very carefully to what they're saying. And number three, never yell. Well, you don't understand how she pushes my buttons. Never yell. If you yell, it's not your wife's fault. It's your fault. It's a lack of self-control. Never, ever, ever, ever yell. And especially don't yell at your kids. My goodness, if you yell and yell and yell at your kids, they're going to grow up with this warped self-esteem, fear. You want your kids living in fear? You want your kids living with a low uh, self-esteem or being insecure? Then keep on yelling at your kid. Don't do that. Don't, uh, don't ever yell. Don't ever resort to name-calling. Why is that? Because, again, your spouse is the most important person in the world and you've got to honor your spouse. Number four, look at the next never on the next screen. Never use absolutes. Well, you always. Or you never. Now, why should you never do that? Here's why, because every time you say you always, it's a lie, every single time. Because you know what, they don't always do that. You're emotional. And so you think they're always doing that, but it's not true. I, I bet you half the time your husband's a great guy. And so don't say, you always, or you never. Don't ever use absolutes because it's always exaggerating, and we're called to speak the truth in what? In love to one another. And then finally, never focus only on your spouse's faults. Okay, so this is going to take divine intervention. You know why this takes divine intervention? Because we were born with this sin, selfish, prideful nature. And, and here's, here's what I've heard. When I used to do marriage counseling, until I finally stepped in, right, and interrupted what they were doing, it's all the blame game. He, 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 he. Well, she, 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 she. And all you can do is focus on why your spouse is wrong and why you are right. And so it takes divine intervention for you, again, to ask God, where am I wrong in this? And this is where you need an accountability partner. This is one of the thousand reasons why life groups are so essential in the body of Christ. Because it's within life groups, when you finally get out of the row and get into a circle, and you have eight to 10 to 12 friends, and maybe out of those eight to 10 or 12 friends, you have two or three that you've started to develop a close relationship with, then all of a sudden you have someone who can hold you accountable if you're humble enough. Then you can actually go to your accountability partner privately, lay out the disagreement you're having with your spouse and say, okay, I've got thick skin. Tell me like it is. Nothing that you say is gonna jeopardize our friendship. I want you to tell me the truth. 
Where am I wrong in this situation? Can you imagine if that started happening in the body of Christ? True, authentic communication and humility. Our church would be stronger. Our marriages would be stronger. Our families would be so much stronger. And then what do you do? Once you find out from the Lord and your accountability partner where you're wrong, you go back to your spouse humbly and you admit where you were wrong. Why should you never focus only on your spouse's faults? Here's why. Because there's only one person you can change. That's yourself. So don't focus on what you can't change. Only focus on what you can change. Does that make sense to you guys? Now, here's a list of always. Things that you always want to do First of all, you always take time to cool down and pray. We already talked about that. The second thing is you always actively listen. Okay, so you're in a disagreement with your spouse. You've said, honey, I need a, I need a break. You go cool down. You spend some time with the Lord. A mutually agreed time, you come back, and now you're with your spouse, and you're ready to talk. She's ready to talk to you. You're ready to talk to her. Okay, and so... Ladies always go first, guys. And so she begins to share. And while she's sharing, you gotta actively listen. And then later on, wives, while your husband's sharing, you gotta actively listen. So what does that mean? That means that you're making eye contact. That means that you're nodding your head. That means that you're responding verbally. Uh-huh, hmm, oh, okay, all right. That means that um, you're repeating back if you have to. Okay, so what I hear you saying is dot, 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 dot. So you better not be focusing on your response while she's talking because you're gonna repeat back what she says. I hear you saying this. And then you show some empathy or sympathy. You know, I can see why you're, why you're upset. I can see why that would hurt you um, in that way. And so actively listen. And then number three, always be respectful. You know what that means? Talk about rubber, rubber meets the road right here, right now, okay? That means that while your spouse is talking, you're not allowed to interrupt. It's gonna be such a big temptation while your spouse is talking for you to interrupt her or for you to interrupt him. Why? Here's why again. I'm just being so real with you this morning. It's because we were born with a sin nature. We have to die daily. And you know what? Our sin nature makes us believe that what we have to say is more important than what they have to say. And so that's why we're always interrupting. It's because we don't really think that what they say matters as much as what we have to say. So we interrupt and we interrupt and we interrupt. And now some couples, again, doing marriage counseling in the past, I saw this all the time. Some couples really need something outside to help. And so what they need is, a lot of couples use this, a talking stick. You ever heard of this before? So you go out in your backyard and you grab a stick and then you go in and you sit down with your spouse. Ladies go first, she's got the stick. Guys, as long as she's got the stick, you're not allowed to talk. Some wives have been known to hold on to the stick for hours. <laughs> and so she's sharing, and then when she's done sharing, she hands you the stick, and now it's your turn. And wives, you're not allowed to interrupt. 
I think talking sticks are great as long as you don't use them as weapons, okay? <laughs> Maybe you should get a talking straw. <laughs> don't get a talking kitchen knife, okay? Because that's not what you want to do. And that leads you to your fourth point on the next screen, as we're talking about always, always attack the problem and not each other. This is so important. Always attack the problem and not each other. Instead of looking at your spouse as the enemy, what do you do? No, she's not the enemy, he's not the enemy. You look at the problem that is threatening the unity of your marriage as the enemy. And then you join up as a team with your spouse to attack the problem. Does that make sense to you guys? I love this one. And so whatever, you know, um, ladies, if he's always leaving the toilet seat up and you walk in there for the hundredth time and the toilet seat is up again, here's what you don't do. Ladies, you don't slam the toilet seat down, march into the bedroom, and say, how many times have I told you I feel devalued when you put the toilet seat, you leave the toilet seat up? Are you stupid or something? I've told you a hundred times. Now, why is that wrong? Because you're attacking your husband, not the problem. Husbands, if you say, well, you really want to feel devalued? All right, I'll leave the seat down. I'll pee all over it. Then you can sit in it. You say, Pastor Mike, you're going way too far. Listen, you, you have never done marriage counseling, okay? Husbands, why is that wrong? Because you're attacking your wife, not the problem. Here's an idea. The, pro the, 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 the problem the enemy is not your wife or your husband, it's the problem, so you join together as a team. Can we brainstorm some practical ways so that, honey, I, I'll remember to do this because I really don't want to devalue you, so, so what can we do? And the wife, well, how about a post-it note? Put a post-it note over the commode. Please put the seat down. I don't know if I want to do that because my life group's coming over, they're gonna be laughing when they read that. And so, how about you know, on the door on the way out, a, a little arrow and a smiley. Okay, that sounds good. What have you just, just done? You've maintained unity as a team. You've attacked the problem and not each other. And so those are some always, and then always focus on your own faults. We've talked about that. At the end of the process, what are we talking about here? We're talking about communication. We're talking about conflict resolution in marriage. At the end of the process, you, you're going to find out that sometimes you need to agree to disagree. And that's okay, as long as the marriage is still intact. And you say, I don't want to lose the argument. Okay, would you rather lose the argument or your spouse? Just agree to disagree and united move forward. If you're single, don't date people who are easily provoked. Don't date people who lose their control. Don't date people who are rude to you or rude to other people. Don't deal with people who have road rage. I'm amazed in Port St. Lucie, the road rage around here. Have you guys experienced this? Insane. And so, you're in a beautiful position if you're dating somebody. You can stay in or you can get out. Observe that person you're dating and make sure that they're a person 
who is not easily provoked. And then in verse five, we go back to verse five. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. And then it thinks no evil. Again, if you have the New American Standard, it keeps no record of wrong. And so that's your next point. Love keeps no record of wrong. It forgives. Everybody, I'm sure, has heard of Billy Graham, his wife, Ruth Graham, concerning marriage before she went home to be with the Lord. She said, and I quote, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. So true. You gotta forgive and forget. By the way, Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, also said this. Someone once asked her, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? She said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> That's Billy Graham. Here's why, because even the Billy Grahams of the world need to be forgiven. None of us are perfect. Newsflash, your spouse is gonna hurt you, your spouse is gonna offend you, and you have to forgive them. You say, why should I? You don't know what they, they've done. Listen, God knows what you've done. If you have a problem with forgiveness, all you gotta do is think this thought. How many times has God forgiven me? And then extend to your spouse the same love and grace and forgiveness that your heavenly Father has extended to you. Here's a great motivation. Jesus said it. If you don't forgive men their faults and trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I say that's pretty good motivation to forgive everybody. Now, if you're dating, if your person you're dating or you're engaged to has admitted it and, they're, and they've admitted they're wrong and asked for forgiveness, forgive them. Don't be a historian, right? If you wanna be a historian, study history, go teach history at a school, but don't be a historian in your marriage. You know, my, you know some people say my wife remembers stuff from decades ago, it ought not be. You gotta forgive and then you gotta forget. I'm not saying you can, you can forget, you can't. But when the Bible talks about God forgiving and forgetting, this is what it means. It means that he forgives, he cancels the debt, and then he chooses never to use that against us ever again. That means that sin that you committed last week, you admitted it, you humbled yourself, you asked the blood of Jesus to forgive you, Jesus to forgive you by his blood, then God will never, ever, ever hold that sin against you ever again. That's our God. If you're dating somebody, you gotta forgive them. But listen to this. That doesn't mean you have to keep dating them. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Forgiveness is free, trust is earned. So if you're dating someone and they violated your trust and you feel honestly that you cannot trust the man or trust the woman, you need to move on to someone that you can trust. Well, that's not, for, no, 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 it is forgiving. You've forgiven them from your heart. You're not holding that against them, you're choosing to move on because once again, Forgiveness is absolutely different from trust. And then look at verse six. We're almost done. Hang in here. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Okay, that's self-explanatory. Verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And once again, on the count of three, help me out. One, two, three. Love never fails. 
So here's your last point, and that is that love is committed for life. It's so easy in our day and age to get divorced, isn't it? You know why it's so easy in our culture to get a divorce? Here's why, because most people in our culture do not regard this as God's word. But if you actually regard this as God's word, you can't ignore Malachi chapter two, verse 16. Malachi two sixteen. Here's, here's what God says. God says, I hate divorce. And so when God, the author of the scripture says, I hate divorce, then we should do everything and anything we can do to keep committed for the rest of our lives. We already talked about in week one, Sometimes there is adultery. Sometimes there is the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. We already covered that. But for more, most divorces, that's not the issue. You know what? For most divorces, you know what the issue is? Two things. Selfishness and discontentment. People really believe that even though their first marriage didn't work, their second marriage will work. That's what people honestly believe. But check out these statistics. Here's the divorce rate in America. First marriage, 50% will end in divorce. You get married again, 67% chance that you will be divorced. Your third marriage, 73%. And that's just not psychology today. That's all over the place. That's a fact. So would it make sense, ladies and gentlemen, to stay in your first marriage? Wouldn't it make sense if you're in your second marriage, stay in your second marriage? Wouldn't it make sense if you're in your third marriage to stay in your third marriage? Because I can't imagine what the fourth marriage statistics are. Wouldn't that make sense? Listen, keep looking into the word. Keep looking into the mirror of the word and listen to this. People are discontent with their spouse. So what do they do? They start looking elsewhere. And they say, oh, what about him? Or, or what, whoa, what about her? Now here's the truth. The truth is the grass always seems greener on the other side of the fence until you move in next door. And then when you move in next door, after a while, the same issues that plagued your first marriage now resurface in the second marriage. The same issues that plagued your second marriage now resurface in the third marriage. You know why? Because even though it's a new relationship, it's the same you. Bringing in your old baggage to the next relationship. And so instead of saying, calling it quits and saying, I'm gonna get a divorce, try this. Here, here's the, the last screen here. Seek Christian counseling. We would love to help if we can. We have pastoral counseling. I don't do a lot of the counseling because I have so many other things to do, but I do have four full-time pastors on staff here. So you may wanna go the, the route of pastoral counseling. Maybe you wanna go the route of, of professional Christian counseling. We have a, a Christian counselor in the Treasure Coast area for two years, awesome success rate. We've been referring lots of people to this person. Come see Pastor Bob Cooper or one of the other pastors. They would love to help. Also, ask God to reveal to you your faults. Before you call it quits, 
have a come to Jesus with the Lord. And then number three, allow his spirit to change you before you call it quits. Don't seek to change your spouse, seek to change yourself. And then finally, learn to be content in your own backyard. I have seen marriages that have been totally this close to divorce. All hell is breaking loose, the bottom's falling out, and you know what? I've seen those marriages restored. And I've seen people own up to their own faults and stop thinking about him or her, start thinking about themselves, and then I've seen God do miracles. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.